0: This podcast was first posted on February 26, 2017. Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders won the Man Booker Prize that year and wound up on several lists as one of the best novels of the decade. A collection of essays about literature, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain, was published in January 2021. My guest is George Saunders, whose first novel is Lincoln in the Bardo. Earlier books, 10th of December, there are six collections. I think five are fiction, one nonfiction. I think that's right, yeah. A couple of other books. Congratulations, by the way, which is... It's a graduation speech. Yeah. And a children's book called The Very Persistent Gappers of Fripp. I'm going to start with that before we get into Lincoln and the Bardo, because it doesn't seem listed anywhere but I'm looking at it. What's the story behind this? It came out years ago in,
1: I think, maybe 2000 with Villard and then had a good run. And then McSweeney's picked it up and then it went out of print. And now Random House just brought it back up, I think about a year ago. And it's just a children's just book? Just a kid's you- book, yeah. I wrote it for my daughters and uh, it was illustrated by Lane Smith, who's a genius. So we had, I think at that time back in 2000, I had hopes that this would be my big money book because, you know, but then it, it, it uh, was. I think it was sort of wound up in the adult section, not the porn, but the, <laughs> but the adult. And so anyway, but it's, I love that. It's, a, it's really close to my heart, and it's uh, sweet. Why did they publish congratulations? By the way, it was a little speech I did in Syracuse, and it, it went viral. I mean, like a million hits or something. So then we thought well, it'd be kind of nice to make it uh, hardcover, make it look kind of pretty, and, and uh, you know, hopefully, be around every
0: every graduation season. The last time I talked to you was for uh, 10th of December, and at that point I said, what are you working on now? And I remember your answer because it was an unusual answer. You said, absolutely nothing, and I have absolutely no ideas, so I don't even know when I'll be writing another short story or anything. Well, That was,
1: I guess, f- four years ago? Yeah, yeah, 2012, I think, yeah.
0: At that point, you had nothing on your plate. Had you been thinking about Lincoln or...
1: Yeah, th- this idea came actually like in the 90s sometime. I was My wife and I were up in uh, D.C., and this her cousin just told this anecdote about this seminal incident that Lincoln had held his son's body, or at least had gone into the crypt. So I was thinking about it since about 94. One other time I tried to write a novel, dropped that really quickly after like page three or something. And then I had a play that was kind of famously catastrophic around our house. We used to joke about the Lincoln play. And then um, somewhere around the last time I talked to you, I don't know, I, I just thought maybe I could— at some point, you know, on a break from the book, give myself permission to uh, just kind of mess around with it. And, you know, so I think I ended up playing with it real lightly in that period for about three months with the idea that, you know, if I I blew three months, it was no big deal. And in that
0: three months, I should be able to see if I could get any momentum going. So how did you take this? What existed at that particular time? And how were you able to kind of
1: Forge it. Yeah. it's so You know, it's interesting when you get to this stage of promotion where you're, the book's done and now you're actually talking about it. I'm always a little confused because they're kind of like parallel narratives. One answer, truthful answer is I'd had that idea around all those years and I, it felt a little too sincere for me. I didn't feel like I had the chops for it, so I kept delaying it. The other one is in there somewhere I wrote it, tried to write another novel, not Lincoln, but set in a graveyard. And it had the same kind of format, which is basically like a modified chat line, you know, the ghost just yapping back and forth. So that was there. Uh, I remember I had a former student who said to me just in passing, if you ever did write a novel, I bet it would be in a series of monologues. And that kind of threw a little switch in my mind, you know. So I'm not really sure the exact order, but I know there was one really critical period of time where I realized I needed some historical ballast in the story, and I kept trying to gorbidol it, you know, trying to make write in third person. It, it wasn't really working. So then I thought, well, how, you know, how do I know all this history that seems emotionally important to the story? And uh, I thought, well, you just read it, you know, you read it in history books. So I, then I came up with the idea of maybe just sampling those you know, literally typing up these historical documents, then cutting them up with scissors and re- arranging them into chapters. Literally cutting them. Yeah, it. On, on the floor of my study, I had this big sprawling thing with three or four chapters in a row and moving stuff around. And that was a, a weird, almost kind of, I thought I was going a little nuts because it certainly wasn't writing in any conventional sense. But I could feel that depending on how you moved those things around, the text would give up more or less he- heat. So then I thought, okay, maybe this is part of it, you know. And that was a big that was a big day when I thought – you know, this is a weird thing to do, but I, I'd stand behind it. I think it's it's valid. You know,
0: and at that point, you kind of knew that this was becoming a novel. Yeah, I, well, I did. You know, I, ho-
1: I was I was rooting for it, but I also I have learned from the past that the more I root for a book to become a novel, the more it's willing to mess with me a little bit. So I think throughout, I kind of kept almost like when you, when you. Um, you know, you have a garbage can and you put your foot on it. And st- I was trying to make sure that the book didn't get any longer than it needed to. And if it could be a novella, great. If it could be a play, great. If it could be a short story, great. Enacting that kind of discipline on it.
0: When you mentioned that you had the multiple voices, like an oral history kind of thing, only they're fictional. At that point, translating that into a story, you said a little light bulb went off. Yeah. So at what point? Does that connect up with Lincoln?
1: Well, that was the light bulb. In that previous book, there was no through line. It was just a bunch of ghosts. And the shtick that I used was, well, the rule is they're going to eulogize whoever's dying that night. But that turned out to be a pretty wobbly through line. It didn't really – so I think the reader of that book would say, oh, this guy just likes to make up ghosts. And he's just – you know. so that idea didn't work. And then when the Lincoln idea arrived, that seemed to me like a kind of a a conveyor belt. We're, We're looking at one night. We're looking at really one pretty simple event, and the, the point of the book is to narrate us through that. So then it gave it kind of a little more forward momentum. Was that around the time of Spielberg's movie? This book was so long in the process that I was working on it in that play form in 1996. Right. There was a distant rumor that Steven Spielberg might make a Lincoln movie. I thought it'll never happen. Who makes a movie about Lincoln? Then it got closer and closer. It was cast. It was made. It won Oscars. And I'm, and I'm still haven't started yet, you know. So it kind of came and went. And I had, of course, the kind of gut check moment where I saw it just to make sure that I wasn't overlapping, you know. And then I said, I had a feeling that whatever I did would be a little, <laughs> would be weirder and, you
0: know. Was there any point where you're going to yourself, I think what I'm doing is so weird that who the hell would accept it?
1: Yeah, I think he's, yes. Uh, yeah. No, I think, and I think that's actually a, a, a respectable part of the process to say, wow, this is hard. And then maybe if you can, move it back a little bit or ease the entry. Like I think a lot of people have said the, the beginning is a little rough. You get into it, you're a little destabilized. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense because I'm trying to mimic, you know, death. So, but on the other hand, I don't want to make it so difficult that it, you drive people off. So a lot of the daily work is exactly what you're saying, you know, can I ease the reader into this? Uh, later, Am I getting enough benefit from the weirdness that it makes it worthwhile? So kind of a real daily titration to kind of make sure that you're not getting too excited about your weirdness, that you're trying to keep an intelligent reader with you, you
0: know, in intimate conversation. Well, at that point, you're starting to get pressure also from people over at your publishing house and saying, George, what's next? Oh, um, they, actually,
1: they, I've been really lucky because my agent and editor are very, they kind of know me and they like, no, don't. We aren't going to do that. But I had a little bit of internal pressure. But, you know, something that ha- helped me with this was that I, for the first time in my career, I actually sold this one before I wrote it. I took an advance for it during the 10th of December thing. And weirdly, that was great because it, this kind of thing could easily become a 30-year, you know, right. I'm losing my mind kind of thing. But that put a nice timer on it. And I find it as a, as a kind of a, a guy from the working class, it really helps me to have a little bit of a buzzer at the end, you know, or a kind of a, a feeling like um, – I mean, that that economic pressure or the expectation pressure jibes nicely with my natural pace, I think.
0: George Saunders, so we basically have two different things coming together, the Lincoln story and the ghosts. So before you reach the Lincoln part, did Roger Bevins and Hans Vollman and the Reverend Everly Thomas, did they exist or did they come out of when you said it in 1862? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. There was a guy named Hans
1: Volman in that play, but he's not the same person. But the name I carried over, I think they came into existence when I decided this is Lincoln was going to show up in a minute. Who's
0: here in the meantime? And kind of just scanned around to see who, who might be there. So at that point, you've got your three narrators, and you've figured out you're going to be alternating it with this oral history of what I assume you thought would only be real <laughs> stuff and then it changed. Yes. Once you decide Lincoln, then suddenly a lot of other things fall into place. The politics of the era, civil war and racism. Yeah.
1: That sounds complicated. <laughs> and
0: you know, for me, the only way I can, I can get any complexity in
1: fiction is to stay very tightly in the, the fictive moment. So, the minute I start thinking ahead or, or planning or organizing, I, I get my my uh, intelligence drops actually. So, what I find is I, I think Styron talked about this once how you write a novel the way you make a long trip at night. You're going a thousand miles, but you can only go 40 feet at a time. So, this book really, uh, for me, was sort of a confirmation of that method for me because I, I just kept thinking scene to scene. And I kind of had a very sketchy idea of Lincoln would come to the graveyard. He'd interact with Willie's body, and then he'd leave. That was about the outline, you know, the whole outline. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny to, to be able to make something that is fairly complex. And I had an experience near the end of this book, which is so wonderful. Like all these bowling pins I'd thrown up sort of came down, not always the way I expected them to, but always satisfyingly. So that was, you know, for me, it kind of verified that from my approach is, has to be to start very small stay in the, the
0: short-term fictive moment, and in time the thing would, will open itself up. One thing I noticed is that even though the Lincoln stuff is there, it's really kind of about death. It seemed almost as if toward the end of the book it was more about your thoughts on death even than Lincoln. Yeah. I mean, I didn't want to write
1: Lincoln. That's, you know, that's hard. Like, that's writing, you know, you're writing the novel about Jesus or something. And so I, I thought... um in a sense, I was also trying to keep him out a little bit. He had to be there, but I didn't want it to be a, a book about Lincoln because I don't think I'm qualified. Right. So then, I guess you know, you I guess you put a book, you know, you put a book in a graveyard, and pretty soon it, it's it's about <laughs> death. You know, it's on my mind. I, I I think it should be on all of our minds. You know, I feel talking about this book, I feel really stupid because I can't with the story. I can usually uh, deconstructed afterwards and I can explain how it happened. And this one was really a beautiful fog. I kind of went into it and it was a bit like being on a long uphill schlep. And then you kind of look up and you're at the top of the hill. Like, Oh, that was, that was kind of cool. But I don't remember a lot of the planning. You know, I don't remember a lot of the, um, there, there weren't like big conceptual decision points, you know, partly because it took place in a very small physical space in a constrained temporal space. I could put about 90% of my attention on that stuff. Where's Lincoln? Where did I leave him? What mental state was he in? Uh, Based on what I said in the first third, what ghost should be over here at this time? And that was an interesting distraction to have your eye over there and then let your subconscious be doing all the heavy lifting
0: somewhere else. Is that where the strange business with the tendrils and the boy came in? It's just like whatever so kind of the rule of the world is that if you if you die if we died right now and
1: we had enough unresolved issues or enough whatever we could stay We could we could will ourselves to stay but in that world a young person that's not the case if you die as a kid you're supposed to just get out of there that kind of came just because Willie had to be out of step with the other ghosts. If it was perfectly okay for him to stay there, then I don't think it's such an interesting thing. And also, there's kind of a downside to staying. You know, you you tend to erode over time. Your your faculties degrade. So I think the um, all that stuff really just appears on the fly. You kind of see what the fictive moment needs, and then you try to supply something that isn't completely predictable. You know. Um,
0: so yeah, I don't know those two characters, but a lot of the others. They all have their own biography, and that made me wonder, as I was reading it, how much of the biographies just popped up, and how many did you say, you know, this one won't work, and you kind of throw it out, and this one will? I think there were a number of those, but the way you know that is they don't write
1: very well. They don't write, you know, enjoyably. I have a feeling that, you know, you're kind of, as you're going along in the book, uh, I I tend to start most reading, most writing days from the beginning of the book and read forward. Uh, If you do that, I, I think you're in this kind of special mind space where you, you're in a kind of mind meld with your reader and you're both hypersensitized to the details of the world, you know, that beautiful state of reading. So I think if you can write out of that moment, intuitively, you come up with some really good stuff. Whereas I, for me, if I plan it in advance, it doesn't work. So my working theory was if I'm moving Lincoln along a path in the cemetery And I want him to look over to the left and see somebody. The best thing I can do is revise the scene where he's walking and then look. And whatever springs into mind, there's some wisdom in that. I might not know what it is now, but because it's occurring organically where I'm in a position of mimicking my reader as closely as I can, we're going to trust that my intuition is giving us something even better than a conscious plan. So there's a lot of those where I'm just, I don't know where that guy came from at all, you know, or or uh, sometimes it would be the physicality would lead to the character. So there's a guy in there who's a hunter, who uh, his sort of purgatory task, because he's, he's got a big pile of all the animals he ever killed in his life, and he has to bring them back to life one by one. That was just, I had a dream, and the dream was something like, Somebody saying to me, "You need more verticality in your book. You need more height. You need, you have to make this world, you know, multidimensional." So I, the next day, I got, "Oh yeah, verticality," and then that showed up. You know?
0: <laughs> the book itself is all of these ghosts are hanging out in the cemetery, and Lincoln comes there uh, to see his dead boy, and that gets interspersed with. Uh, these chapters of material from actual historians. Now, I would assume the Doris Kearns Goodwin stuff is all real, or yeah. did you make up?
1: No, no. I, I, if I if
0: I use the name of a real writer or real book, that's always exactly an exact copy. And so at what point did you go, well, I don't have enough material, I'm just going to add? No,
1: it wasn't. That, it was more that um, some, some of the stuff I had been chewing on for 20 years, like there's a party scene at the beginning, right. the Lincolns throw a party, and then that night, Willie takes a real turn for the worst, And they, they always felt, and I think people in the culture felt, that there was something weird or fishy about the fact that they had this party when he was sick. So I read about that party first maybe 15 years ago in this Margaret Leach book called Beverly in Washington. So, you know, over the years as I kind of did this little dance with this book, I, I had imagined that scene many times. And so then I found when I t- took just the factual things, that party didn't fit with the party in my mind, so to speak. So then I thought, well, is that legit? Yeah, I think it is. You know, since I'm making up the whole thing anyway, I can <laughs> certainly making, make up my making up. So then it became an opportunity that I could invoke when I needed to. And I tried to do it really sparingly, you know. So that was the, the contract I made with myself and, you know. <laughs> so you went to the library, found tons and tons of books. Yeah. Yeah, and also I had a kind of, it was just a hobbyist thing for those four or five years, or maybe actually maybe for 15 years. But if there was something about that period, I'd just grab it and read it and type type it up and see. And there were other times where the, I, I stumbled on certain books that actually produced chapters, like this one book called The Physical Mr. Lincoln, or The Physical Lincoln, which just lists every contemporaneous uh, description of his fingers, his ears, his eyes. And um, that kind of begged for a section, you know. So I had I had a rule that was like, The history sections couldn't come either uncaused or without resulting in something. They had to be narratively motivated. So sometimes it was a matter of thinking, I would really like to write about Lincoln's body and kind of turn into the characters and can anybody give me an entree into this? Or other times I wrote sections. I had a kind of a pretty cool section um, where I went into all the major religions and took their sort of foundational text uh, about death and the moment of death. And my thought, which I I still like, was that all these ghosts would would turn to you and say, here's what it was like for me at the moment of my death. And then interspersed with that, you'd get these foundational accounts. Well, when I did it, it just didn't really, it didn't go anywhere. You know, there was no reason for it to be there. So off it goes, to the trash bin.
0: As you're writing this toward the latter stages, we were involved in the uh, 2016 election cycle. How, if at all, did your view of that find its way into the book, and I would assume it was all unconsciously. Yeah, I think actually in
1: this case, I finished it in substance about maybe a year and a half ago. So yeah. I really had it finished. And actually at the time what was feeding it more was the uh, racially motivated murder. So those were kind of in my mind. The, the, yeah. um, but no, so the book was done and I sent it off and then, um, then the Trump thing started up and I went to c- cover the rallies with his campaign. So it was actually the other way. The book kind of made me uh, – I don't know. It, it kind of, you know, it, it took America out of like amber and into like f- fluidity for me. I thought, oh man, this country is beautiful idea that we never have gotten right yet. We we're still in the middle of that. That was my thought. And
0: uh, then then the election happened. You know. So the Black Lives Matter. Some of the racial material toward the end might have been influenced by. That. Yeah, I,
1: I knew that that material would have to be there eventually. But then um, I would say writing that material. Woke me up to the, to Black Lives Matter and the fact that you know I, I can never get the quote right, but Faulkner said you know the past is not past and the issues that were going on in the Civil War, which I, I tend to regard as kind of you know a little bit museum stuff, that because of the post Reconstruction it's it's it never ended it literally didn't it just got truncated and now that energy uh, is still submerged and coming up.
0: You know? I think it was October 2015. I interviewed Paul Theroux who had done a book called Deep South, which was a travel book about traveling through the South. And I was just editing it and putting it up now. And I edited something out because time-wise it just didn't fit. It was around a three-minute segment on gun clubs of the South, which he said operate kind of as social clubs. Mm -hmm. And the anger and the feeling of being losers... So permeated that section of the interview and that section of the book that, in thinking about the way Trump voters respond and their anger and hatred, it seemed like a direct connection from the Civil War in the South to the gun clubs to what we're doing now. Yeah, I
1: mean that, that's a that's a deep that's a deep one. Yeah,
0: you know I, you know it's funny I, I find myself
1: the last six months. More and more, saying, "I don't know." I yeah, I don't know, and and I'm starting to get comfortable with that. I mean, normally my you know the intellectual in me wants me to scramble to the top and make a pronouncement, but I'm I'm really I went on those Trump rallies and I threw myself into it. Had a really hard time finishing the piece. I got rejected twice and sent by back, the New York, yeah, sent back to the drawing board. Correctly, absolutely correctly, uh, and yeah. uh, so thankful for their, their guidance. And then I wrote the piece. I felt pretty good about it, and. Now, five months later, I'm still finding myself every day trying to understand what's going on, you know, and I, my, I think what I'm starting to th- realize is that there was a problem that goes back many years, which is that the money went up, you know, the middle class and the lower middle class got cleaned out. So if you think of it as a, you know, a, a culture living on a mountainside, the, the middle and lower portions, uh, all the oxygen went up. So that makes People anxious, you know, and uh, and I in my other books I've written about that a lot, you know, about the way that a uh, working person, work, working person's grace gets gets uh, denuded, and I think you know of all the understanding that Bernie Stan- Sanders is the one that made the most sense to me. He, I think, he nailed it. So he didn't get in, and that energy was still there, the energy of, of feeling like you've been passed over, uh, mm-hmm. not entirely incorrect. And then you add in a dose of, I would say, this right wing media. That that was the the real spark. So you get people who are feeling in different ways that they've been passed over and that their moment is missed. You add in some right wing media, and then then you watch what happens. You know, so it's re- it's to me very tragic because I, I heard a Bernie Sanders talk at Flagstaff as I was reporting that New Yorker piece. It was so beautiful. You know, I mean, I, I'd never heard a more comprehensive, inclusive, lyrical. Description of what our country could be like. The, the crowd couldn't have been any more diverse in every possible way, uh, and I thought we're there. This is it. This is going to be. An, this is going to be the completion of the Civil War, basically. And then, of course, we know how, how that turned out. So it's a it's a very ripe, uh, confusing moment. And for me, I'm just trying to say, yeah, this is confusing shit. It really is, and I really don't know the answer. That, as a sort of
0: first level uh, uh, intellectual approach, seems to me pretty honest at this point. Do you think that this will play some kind of role or? In, in later fiction, for you? Or oh, not? I'm sure. Yeah,
1: isn't it, I mean, I, I we were out to dinner last night, my wife and my daughter, and you know, we we kept finding our conversation bending back to this political stuff, and even when we'd resolve to not, here it comes. So I'm sure um, any artist is going to be struggling with it. The question, I guess, is what do you make of it? You know, because what's the deep human lesson in, in all this stuff? And I, I, it's Shakespearean, actually. I think you know. So, so I, I, I certainly hope my mind will go there. But what I found in the past is if I decide to go there. The result will be no good. So I'm going to tr- probably concentrate on something entirely different, and you know see how this work permeates it. And and, um, and this book actually, I'm sure, has a lot of. If someone said to me, "What do you think about this political moment?", I would love to have written this book in response. I think it actually answers the moment. But my eye was somewhere else. You know, we we can't. I think we can't get out of the fundamental energies of our time. But we can just channel them in whichever way is natural for us.
0: So the Black Lives Matter kind of channeled itself into Lincoln and the Bardo kind of through the back door.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: And, you know, I think for me, what happens is I, I don't think this is true of
1: all writers, but for me, if I can actually have some essential energy and then write about something that is actually not related, that suits my intellectual purpose better. If I, I'm a real literal kind of person, so if you say, write something about racial inequity, and I try to I will, but it won't be much fun, you know. But if you but if you say, let, let me, uh, you know, we're sitting here at this desk and there's an upturned glass and an empty water bottle and a pen. If I have racial inequity on my mind and I start making these three things into characters, that'll be actually much more truthful for me, you know. So, so we're going to have a, a talk about the water bottle versus the glass and something will
0: happen. How do you keep yourself then, as you're writing it, from trying to make those connections knowing that if you make the connections you're gonna screw up the story yeah that is I, you know I, I remember after 9/11 that was a huge problem
1: because uh, I was in the middle of it luckily I was in the middle of another story that had been started before that so then I could sort of pretend that 9/11 hadn't happened and just concentrate on that particular story. but I I I, uh, I'm, I I find myself where I was last time I don't have anything in progress and this time maybe even more so because then at least I had the notion of trying this uh, <laughs> but but one of my resolutions is don't don't you know, as they say in Hollywood, don't be too on the nose. Somebody said the other day, I have, I have a book called *The Brief and Frightening Reign of Phil*, which someone said, "Oh my God, that's the Trump movement." And it might be. I haven't read it in a while. I think the next book won't be so much about that movement. But what's of interest to me is, what do you do with somebody when you totally disagree with them? What's the what's the uh, empathetic relation to to them? Now we know if it's your your spouse. And you're disagreeing over where your shoe is that we know, we do, we empathize. Now let's move that, that person farther and farther away. So now it's uh, me and, and a Trump supporter, say. All right, now let's move it even further away. It's me and somebody on the far alt, right, who really does mean harm. When does that empathetic imagining become invalid? Does it become invalid? And I actually I don't know the answer to that one either, but I'm, I'm thinking about it. You know, if we're going to be in opposition to somebody, what's the proper stance especially if we accept the idea that fiction is basically ritualized empathy. Is there a point beyond which you don't want to do that? You know, what would Shakespeare do with an extreme racist, you know, with a firebomb in his hand, you know, those kind of things are kind of alive for me. So the, this, our ability to
0: empathize and so on. Well, there's a lot of science fiction that tackles that. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I, so I, so that, but that to me is, and I also, when you start thinking about the advances in brain research, you know, very interesting that, that, uh, It might not be far away where I could just say, you know, Richard, I need you need to be about 20 percent more empathetic and give you a shot. And then, you
0: know, know, someone like George Lakoff is working in those areas as someone like Steven Pinker would say, Lakoff's more philosopher than scientist. At that point, I think the fiction writer like George Saunders somehow falls into there, too. It may be Lakoff said that if you want to change someone's mind, you have to do it through the back door, mm. and whatever the back door is for him, he'd say emotion. For a novelist, they might say fiction.
1: Yeah, well, and you know, some people might eventually be able to say chemistry. You know, I, I'm sure that's true. You know, if uh, yeah. I was a former scientist, and I'm sure if once we start to understand the, the mechanics of the brain. Of course, we're going to start altering it. I mean, we've done it already, but we're going to alter it with great precision. You know, if you imagine or remember the day in your life when you were the most generous and loving, if somebody could press a button and make you like that every day, would you opt for it or not? And I think I would. But on the other hand, it seems a little bit robotic somehow, you know.
0: I mean, if you wake up on the wrong side of the bed on one day and on the right side the other, both are valid. On the other hand, I'd rather get seven and a half hours sleep. It, right. Every night, not right. six. And also, you know, I mean, just in my experience, I know that on a day when I'm, say,
1: 60% present in my life, I tend to do stupider, more hurtful things. If I was 80%, not so much. So then do you have the right, you know, in this world, do you have the right, we're writing the next book already, but if you have the right in that world to opt to be 60% aware when by being 80% aware, you might not kill that guy at the stoplight,
0: you know, those kind of questions. At the same time, if you're 60% and now we're coming right back to you, then on some level your focus and consciousness is just, say, a tad to the right or left or shaded gray. And as a writer, you're at that point more open to the unconscious.
1: Hmm. I wonder about that one. That's that, That's an interesting one. Well, certainly I would say as a writer you should be able to write Equally about the 60% awareness or the 80% awareness, and that, as you say, either one of them is good. There shouldn't or be, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll probably just write some songs. <laughs> it would,
0: it would be simpler. Well, let, let's get back to Lincoln and the Bardo and your work. One other question I had is there's a sequence where people are describing what the moon was like, that there was a moon, and there's one comment saying that there was no moon. Mm-hmm. Were those two real? I'm going to pass on that one. I'll pass on it. I will say that
1: if you, if when you submerge yourself in the in the correspondence, it's amazing the, especially in terms of Lincoln. But there's so many different people remembering things differently many years later. So I I was at a a reunion recently, and you know, someone said, "I remember when we did such and such," and I'm like, "I was not there." Of course, you were used to this, and they had very precise memories of what I said. So there's that kind of wonderful moment where we looked at each other, and we really didn't have any way of knowing what was true so i as i wrote the book i came to love that idea that i mean of course there's the idea of impermanence right and we think well this nice room is going to disappear and we're going to disappear but somehow you don't think of history as disappearing or a history of being a kind of a you know an illusion but of course even the history that if we talked about the last time we did this interview i, I just i asked you a little while ago where were we you know what room are we in So that to me is kind of beautiful and there's a sort of a moral quality to it because if we can't be sure about those kind of things, what's the correct moral stance? If we really can't remember, you know, the the details of certain things, I feel like that should induce some kind of humility in us, you know, that, that everything is wavering, everything is inconstant. What's the correct
0: human position in all of that inconstancy? And that comes right into the way the characters are there because most of the characters, the dead people. Their memories are off. Yes. The, one of the things in the book is that they, they have to work so hard to not
1: go on and, and be taken out uh, into whatever follows that they just
0: keep repeating their stories over and over again. But the stories themselves have holes in them. I mean, they're not reliable narrators. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, 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 what, and one of the sad things, I didn't plan this,
1: but it happened sort of naturally, was that as they tell those stories, they're kind of foundational myths the peripheral stuff gets lost to them you know so a little bit like you see sometimes older people you know will say that they, they they come to telling two or three anecdotes over and over again and you get the feeling that the world is kind of shrinking on them a bit and pretty soon they're reduced to two anecdotes
0: there's an audiobook George Saunders of Lincoln in the Bardo According to Entertainment Weekly. You put this together with 166 different narrators.
1: There's a great producer named Kelly Gilday in Random House, and she was one of the a great artistic inspiration because I brought this idea. I said, "Could we? You know, I don't want to read this whole thing. There's too many voices. Could we get people to do it?" And she said, "Yeah, we could." And then she said, "Let's try to do uh, a separate voice for each speaker in the book." And then she went out and did. I, I didn't do much. I, I got a producing credit, but she did all the legwork. So she had at one point a spreadsheet with every character, how many times they speak, where they speak, the gender, and all that kind of stuff. And then she just would call me and say, you know, we're 20 away from getting
0: it all the way there. And, and Nick Offerman is Hans Volman, and David Sedaris is Roger Bevins. Yeah, that's right. And I'm the third guy, so I'm like the weak link in
1: that, in that <laughs> trio. Have you heard the whole thing? I haven't listened from the beginning to the end, but I've heard all of it in segments. But yeah, it's really, it's really something... For the person who wrote the book, it's amazing because it really does bring different things. You notice different things. So I read a review that said it makes the characters seem like more like three-dimensional people than the book, and I think that's definitely true. You know, you hear Ben Stiller doing this Jack Manders, and it's and he's kind of whispering it as he does, and it's, it was really wonderful.
0: Well, most of the book kind of reads like a long play. So, you can do
1: that. Yeah. What was funny was when I wrote it as a play, it didn't read like a play. It, was, it just was <laughs> stupid. But when I said, okay, we're going to make a series of prose monologues, then, then it kind of got a little more life in it.
0: I'm curious about one thing, and it made it a little bit confusing for me, and I had to spl- go back and forth on the pages. Yeah. You make the choice, I assume it's you who made the choice, to have the name of the narrator follow what they're saying rather than proceed. it. Yes, and that's very
1: perceptive read.
0: Uh, in that earlier
1: graveyard book, it wasn't the case. I had the name at the beginning, and then the text would follow. And in early drafts of this, that was also the case. The ghost uh, attributions were at the top, but I I liked the way it looked when the historical attributions were at the bottom where they belong. So for a while, those two things were fighting, and it just bugged me. It bugged me that there were, that the reader could see too easily who was who. There was one character I was writing, he's in the book now, he's a Lieutenant Prince, and he's a guy who's just been killed in the Civil War, and it's just starting to realize that he's dead. And in an early draft, I had six or seven uh, entries by him, and the first few were, he was still alive, and he was writing to his wife. And then at one point, he was killed and didn't realize it, so he's still in his mind writing a letter to his wife. And that was ugly, because he... He, his uh, attributions were at the bottom, and then they switched to the top, and it just felt uh, clunky to me. So then I thought, wait a minute, what if we put them all at the bottom? So then you're in the in the mode of saying, okay, it is going to be a little confusing, and you weigh that against, oh, it's going to be kind of cool though because the ghosts and the non-ghosts are going to look the same. So that's when you get to those artistic decision points, and my way of making the decision is which is cooler, you know, which and, and I thought, oh, that'd be really amazing if in the moment when we went from A ghost to a non ghost, we didn't maybe notice it at first. That was kind of the.
0: That's how you know you sort of gamble on those things. What wound up happening with me is at first I'm thinking this must be Lincoln because the book is called Lincoln in the Bardo, only it's not Lincoln. I think it was Bevins. Mm -hmm. Uh, It could have been Volman. Volman is the first speaker. Okay, it was Volman. And it isn't until the end of that I'm going, well, where's Volman? And then I have to go back later on. I got used to looking down first before reading it. That was one one thing that I I really been excited about is that you, you know, you always hear
1: that cliche about uh, the book taught me how to read it. But what's been interesting is to talk to readers and, you know, so for example, when I was writing this, I would always skim I found myself skimming the attributions like when there'd be a three line historical attribution. I'm not sitting there reading it word for word. Right. I'm just glancing. So I talked in the, before we had the book out, I talked to a number of readers at random house and they said, yeah, I, I do the same. So then you get that cool thing of being able to cheat a little bit. You know, as a writer, you know that the reader is going to note the attribution, not read through it. So you can kind of play with that a little bit, you know, but it's, it's it was exciting to me to think that um, people do have reading patterns and if the form could kind of exploit that, that's kind of
0: a, an extra little uh, accessory you can use. What happened with me is I'm trying to get through it really quickly because I got the Paul Oster book I've got to read afterwards. So I'm thinking I need to go back and see this, but I don't have the time to do mm-hmm. it. So there's an entire little section of the book playing with it that's that right. I missed. Right. That's there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that, that's okay. You know, I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the things, you know, I find as I'm getting older, I just don't want to Well, I don't want to be bored and I don't want to phone things in. So when this book appeared on my horizon and it's got, you know, a a book like this is fraught with so many potential problems. In a way, at this point in my life, I'm like, that's really good. You know, problems make opportunities. It's nice to have to go out on thin ice and, and, you know, try to solve problems in ways that might not be perfect. I think that's kind of part of the artistic energy I'm trying to attain.
0: Yeah. Well, when you're reading the reviews, are you occasionally seeing something there that's really cool that you know is never in your brain? I always quickly revise what was in my brain. To,
1: yeah, I meant to do that. I, I mean, there's a lot. It, reviews are fun because you there are certainly people who have uh, noticed things that I didn't notice. But my operating theory is you kind of uh, the writer's job is a bit like the politician who says I approve this message. So if I read a draft, I'm not sure that I could articulate everything that's happening in it. But my claim is. I'm in that reading mode we talked about earlier where you're super sensitized. If I get through it without marking it up, I approve this message. Now, hopefully there'll be um, almost like a, a snow globe or something where you, depending on who the reader is and how which direction she's looking at it through, it might give off different kinds of light. But I would say that's that's a uh, design feature of a well-designed book is that you, know, you can look at it through different angles and get different
0: things out of it. The uh, galley contains an interview between you and Random House, and that's not in the finished book. Was that ever intended to be in the finished book? No, I don't think so. I think we were trying to basically give a little bit of a, I don't know, like a coaching
1: or a head start just in in case the book was weirder than we thought. And then, um, (laughs) then, yeah, then my thought was, I kind of, this book, you know, I did something different. There's not, there's a very minimal dedication to my kids. There's no acknowledgements. I just, I just like the idea of it being kind of a, a, standalone book in which I wasn't actually present at all as a, explainer or a transitional figure, just
0: vanish. I had not heard of what the bardo was until the last season of Lost.
1: I'm a Buddhist, but kind of a beginner Buddhist. So my bardo is not actually the correct, it's not correct per, you know, so I should put that disclaimer. But basically, bardo just means transitional space. So we're in one right now. We're in the bardo of that goes between birth and death. But this book is in the one that goes from death to whatever Next in Tibetan tradition, that would be reincarnation. So it's a little bit like purgatory, but purgatory is a, you know a little harsher. I think purgatory, you screwed up and you sit here until the end of the world. But the bardo is a little more, um, as I understand it, it's a little bit dependent on your state of mind when you die or, or your habit of mind when you die. Some have described it as this intense, intensely, or at least part of the bardo, as an intensely hallucinogenic period where whatever thought patterns you've sort of instituted over your life get writ large, uh, whatever neurosis you have writ large. If you have a, a religious system that you're very steeped in, you might see manifestations out of that, you know. So so I kind of I named it Bardo because purgatory, I think, would be static. You know, I understand purgatory from having been a Catholic, and that's a place where you just wait, you know. It's like right. Dr. Seuss's waiting place. Um, the Bardo, I think, is a little more transactional. Uh, some of the In some of the Buddhist uh, after-death stories, they're – a lot of emphasis is put on the fact that these visions, these horrifying visions that you see, are being created by your mind. So therefore, if you know that, then you can sort of, you know, uh, convert them and so on.
0: Well, there's one character who kind of knows he's there, and then he's out of the book because he's transitioned, and we never really know why he's there.
1: Yeah, that the, the Reverend. That yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. He's well, he's he was of course
1: a Christian minister, so he's the one guy who's gone out of the Bardo to the judgment phase. And of course, he comes back and reports on it in a very Christian iconography. Wow. There's a, some revisions between the two versions. So in this, in the, in the final book, we still don't know why he did it, and he doesn't know why. But his thought is, even as a ghost, if he
0: can still manage to do something good, maybe God will still notice. So we don't actually know what
1: happens to him afterwards.
0: But. Well, you can't know because the only time we know what happens is when he comes back right. and says, "That's or, the only place." Oh, we we can't phone back. Well, one thing I found in reading Lincoln and the Bardo at this particular time is that it felt like the Bardo during the period of the election to the Trump inauguration. Now it almost feels like a Bardo between the Trump inauguration and whatever horrible thing is going to befall and. Who knows where we'll go? Yeah. It doesn't seem, it
1: seems scary because no matter what happens, th- this energy is stirred up. And you know how I, there's another barter, which is when the book comes out and the reviews aren't in yet. <laughs> and, and what I noticed having just come out of that one is you, you um, there's a human, a really deep human desire to find a resting place, you know, an, an, um, to to get to a conceptual place where we can rest. I'm a good person. I'm a, a good writer, I'm a father, I'm whatever it is, uh, or politically I know for sure that I'm center left and I'm absolutely correct, I know for sure that our country won't descend into chaos uh, or I know for sure that it will, but the transitional thing has to do with living with that uncertainty, like you really I don't really know what's going to happen to our country and oh, do I ever hate that, you know um, now as a writer, you, I have found that you're kind of courting that state when you're in, a, in the middle of a book or a non-fiction story the desired place is to be shorn of all conceptual certainty because then you're more open to the actual energy coming off the writing. But it's not easy to stay in that position. We don't like that kind of uncertainty. So I suppose in some small way, uh, art can be a kind of a training ground for becoming a little more comfortable with that uncertainty. But this, what we're in now, is a whole, a whole other level, as they say on The Bachelor.
0: <laughs> I went to IMDb, and I found some materials. I don't know which of these are yours, or what? The Red Bow, Winky, Exhortation, Offloading for Mrs. Schwartz. Are these yours? Oh, mine.
1: I think all of those, I, I gave them my blessing, and they maybe <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I didn't. And what is the Book of Saunders? It's a know. documentary. I think that's the one that was made for the Atlantic. It's a short. Oh no, no, that actually No, that was made by a guy at SU. Uh, it's a documentary about about my writing. Stu Listen is his name.
0: George Saunders, uh, you said you're not working on anything now, and you don't have any Lincoln in the Bardos sitting in the back room waiting to come out. Or I do really, you?
1: this time I really, I really don't. I have a, I've, I'm working on TV, uh, some TV stuff for Amazon uh, that that I'm about halfway through with. And I'm literally going back uh, after a couple of months to just really see what happens. What um, Amazon stuff can you talk about? It's, yeah, I can just say it's a it's based on a story of mine called Sea Oak that was in Pastoralia, and uh, so they hired me to write uh, three or four episodes of that. And now we're kind of just oh we're in the bardo. We're just waiting to see. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would seem that you could write Black Mirror. Yeah, I wish that's really wonderful. <laughs> I, that's such a good show. That's a different it's a different mode. But um, I I feel like um, I learned one thing about myself is that in between projects, it's good for me to take a side run off to something else that's, that uh, isn't that easy for me, and a little bit of um, a chance to go back to beginner mind. And then when I come back to fiction, I feel really
0: energized. So, And that's where you'll be. That's
1: where okay. I'll be, I hope. I hope.
0: Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.